You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. In recent days, a disagreement splashed over the news, with French President Macron calling for a, quote, European army, and President Trump calling that insulting. Donald Trump has repeatedly voiced his unhappiness with the low defense spending by America's European friends. So what is this dispute about, and how did we get here? That's the focus of this episode of The Zeitgeist. To start, though, an important bit of context. The world is marking this year the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War, November 11, 1918. That war had many consequences, and it shaped, in many ways, the century to come. First, the Russian Revolution, which was followed by a civil war and the victory of the Bolsheviks. The Soviet Union became an exporter of revolution and then a superpower after World War II, forming the opposite pole to the United States. Second, the end of empires, Austrian, German, Ottoman, and Russian, and the recreation of the Polish state, which had been snuffed out a century earlier. And third, that war made the United States a European power for the first time, contributing decisively to the outcome and helping shape the peace settlement. But Washington wore the mantle of responsibility uneasily and did not invest the political effort and resources into sustaining the influence so dearly purchased in war. After the Second World War, the United States was determined not to make that mistake again. And so for nearly 70 years, the United States has been the preeminent European power, based on two convictions. First, that America's defense begins not at our borders, but across the Atlantic in Europe. And second, that our defense is most effective when we have allies at our side. And NATO is the manifestation of transatlantic defense. But no relationship is ever without its difficulties and disagreements, not even between societies as close as the United States and Europe. For almost as long as NATO has existed, Washington has wanted its European allies to contribute more to the common defense. President Eisenhower made that point from the start of his administration, when NATO was just four years old. Former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates made the point also in 2011, during his last meeting with NATO defense ministers. Indeed, if current trends in the decline of European defense capabilities are not halted and reversed, future U.S. political leaders, those for whom the Cold War was not the formative experience that it was for me, may not consider the return on America's investment in NATO worth the cost. After Russia's 2014 invasion of Ukraine, NATO allies realized they needed to rebuild their defense in Europe and reinvest massively. At a meeting of alliance leaders in Wales, they put that commitment in writing, setting a target of spending 2% of their GDP on defense and devoting 20% of their defense spending to equipment and research and development. All 28 NATO nations have pledged to increase their investments in defense and to move toward investing 2% of their GDP in our collective security. So this is not exactly a new issue but it has come to dominate the U.S. security relationship with Europe in an unprecedented way under President Trump. In 2017, at his very first meeting with NATO leaders, Trump shamed them in public at a ceremony supposed to celebrate solidarity, and he seemed to suggest that countries owed the United States for past underspending, although that's not actually how NATO works. And many of these nations owe massive amounts of money from past years and not paying in those past years. Trump also hinted at moving the goalpost from the 2% spending target, telling his counterparts that We should recognize that with these chronic underpayments and growing threats, even 2% of GDP is insufficient to close the gaps in modernizing readiness and the size of forces. That should not obscure the turnaround. Already since 2014, NATO allies have been increasing their defense spending dramatically, as NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg reminded. In 2014, allies agreed to stop the cuts, start to increase, and move towards spending 2% of GDP on defense within a decade. Since then, we have made major progress. But we still have a long way to go, 
so we must redouble our efforts. At the same time, the European Union is playing a bigger role in fostering European defense investment and creating the capacity for the EU to take military action in crisis zones, such as the Mediterranean, Mali, or the Horn of Africa. Some European leaders even call for a European army, as French President Emmanuel Macron put it in November 2018. President Trump saw that as an insult to the U.S. and to NATO. German Chancellor Angela Merkel, in contrast, in mid-November gave Macron's idea an endorsement in principle while acknowledging that it was far off. Speaking before the European Parliament, The Chancellor there says, we should work on the vision to create one day a true European army. How far has NATO come on burden sharing? What is the role of the European Union? How does NATO cooperate with the EU? And is there a danger that a growing European role would undermine NATO? Those are the questions we will address in the Zeitgeist this time around. And we have one of the most experienced and knowledgeable guests you could imagine to help us. Heiner Braus, for the last 11 years, was a senior official on NATO's international staff in Brussels. As Assistant Secretary General for Defense, he was responsible for NATO initiatives to close the burden-sharing gap until his retirement in July 2018. I spoke with him in Bonn, Germany, and we recorded it on my iPhone, which is why the sound is not quite studio quality, but I think the fidelity is quite okay. So let's get into this edition of the Zeitgeist. So we're here in Bonn, Germany, former capital of the Federal Republic of Germany, with Heiner Braus, who was until recently the Assistant Secretary General of NATO for Defense Policy and Planning. And uh, I'm delighted to have you here with me, Heiner. Thanks for coming. Uh, Glad to, to be talk. here. And so this is an opportunity, I think, a really timely one to talk about some of the trends in transatlantic defense, in particular NATO, but also on the topic of burden sharing. And, and then lately in this past week, we've heard President Trump express strong opinions about European defense capabilities and how they should be developed. So I want to touch upon these things and try to bring them together because there has been a lot happening uh, on burden sharing and on European defense. And maybe if, if we could start by setting a bit of a baseline, um, maybe 2014 is the right year to start with. And if you could t talk a little bit about what NATO members agreed to in 2014 and why. I mean, as, as you certainly remember, Jeff, 2014 was a year of, to be honest, a strategic shock. And it, it, 2014 marks a fundamental change of the security environment we face. A, to the east, and B, to the south. To the east, it's clear, with the aggression of Russia against uh, Ukraine and the illegal um, occupation of uh, Crimea, the security situation in the whole of Europe has fundamentally changed. And we, have no, we are now being confronted with a more aggressive, sometimes even belligerent Russia um, that uh, um, challenges the um, traditional European security order with many allies feeling a potential military threat, including through their, um, what we call hybrid tactics they apply every day against Western nations. So in other words, this reminded people of why NATO exists in the first place. More or less. Um, and in the South, just to complete the picture, we were confronted with the emergence of ISIL, which is a non-state actor with what we call state-like ambitions, capabilities and resources. Um, they are part of this uh, arc of instability uh, in the South, uh, but uh, they were and continue to be of real concern for the Europeans and for NATO in its entirety. Both challenges, risks and threats are completely different, but both are equally important for the security of the alliance and in particular of, NATO, of, the Europe, uh, of Europe. And therefore they need to be tackled simultaneously and with almost the same energy. Yeah. And uh, uh, 
this 2014 in Wales was the moment where all the heads of state and government realized and recognized this um, double threat, if you will, uh, to the east and to the south, and the need for the alliance to become stronger and to recognize and fully implement no, to, to recognize that its first core task, deterrence and defense, has been moving in the focus of the strategic attention again. Because After there were 20 or 25 years of focusing on crisis response outside NATO. Right. And because, as you say, for 20 or 25 years, there was, there was, no, there was no threat um, of, of imminent um, violent confrontation in Europe. Now, some people might take the 2008 example and the Russian war uh, in Georgia as, as, a, as a, a point to say we should have woken up sooner. But uh, nevertheless, but we um, but we didn't. Uh, but in 2014, um, there was a recognition uh, that, that NATO needed to get serious about its core responsibilities. And then that was linked with a, a pledge uh, on uh, on defense investment, that is, defense spending. Yeah, the so-called Defense Investment Pledge, or DIP, uh, as the NATO acronym calls. Yeah, an acronym that doesn't work so well in English, <laughs> of course. <laughs> is one key measure that was taken in Wales, amongst many others, to provide for the uh, uh, fundamentally changed security environment and to adapt NATO to the uh, long-term changes in that security environment. You might remember that we, or the heads of state and government, uh, agreed the Redness Action Plan, mm -hmm. which was in essence uh, a plan to make uh, NATO and allies um, capable of rapidly reinforce an ally at the periphery of NATO if this ally comes under distress or would be threatened or even attacked. And uh, in order to implement all the measures of this readiness action plan, reinforcing the NATO response force, establishing the very high readiness joint task force, the so-called spearhead force, yes. and many other measures, it was clear that much more resources were required. And this led to the so-called defense investment pledge, which in essence means that uh, nations committed to stop the decline of air defense budgets after years of, uh, of reductions. Mm -hmm. Second, increase their defense budgets in real terms. And these two commitments have been fulfilled by all allies up to now. By yeah. now. And the third one, aim to move towards... <laughs> <laughs> Some well-parsed words there. Yeah, the diplomatic uh, construct towards 2% of GDP to be spent for defense, and out of this 2%, 20% for research and development and modern equipment. Right. So this was one part. The second part was that all the NATO capability requirements should be fulfilled, and the new money should be invested into these NATO capabilities. Mm -hmm. So these two sides of the same coin need to be seen together. And treat it like that. So we're going to spend more, and we're going to spend we're going to spend it on things that we agree are relevant to the current security challenges NATO Correct. faces. Yeah. Um, and and we will hold each other mutually to meeting um, meeting those goals. Um, and, and it was the first time that heads of state and government agreed to such a commitment. And I remember, I mean, you, you and I as, uh, have, worked, have worked together at NATO for a, a long time, and, uh, and I know going back in my own career, the idea of setting a spending target is something the United States has always <coughs> wanted to, uh, to, to get agreement on, and it was only in 2014 that it finally happened after, after many years uh, of trying. And uh, now, at times, that, that number, that 2% number, is it becomes almost the you know the iconic representation of whether NATO is succeeding or failing if you listen to the way the president uh, president Trump that is often describes it um, but as you said it's also connected to other things it's connected to acquiring real capabilities that will help NATO defend um, itself and uh, and project security um, uh, there's another element of the of the 
burden sharing discussion that I want to mention as well, and that is the relationship with the European Union. You know, the the United States has had, I would say, an ambivalent uh, attitude over the last two decades toward the European Union and the possibility that it would develop defense capabilities in one way or another, whether it would have a, uh, a military uh, establishment of its own. Uh, the, the fear from Washington has always been that this, is, that this would duplicate things NATO does uh, and that it could distract European allies from doing things um, within, within NATO. But I think it's important for people listening to recognize that there's been a lot of progress made in the last uh, couple of years. In particular, you've been at the center uh, of a lot of that. So can you tell us a little bit about what is new in that NATO-EU relationship? Yeah, with great pleasure. But with your permission, Jeff, I just wanted to briefly come back to the Defense Investment Pledge. Please. It has to do with, with the question you have raised. In 2017, when President Trump came to Brussels for the first time. A very special meeting at that time. But at, for this meeting, the nations, including the United States, agreed to broadening the scope of the Defense Investment Pledge. Cash, yes, 2% and 20%, which I refer to. Capabilities in V, they explicitly agreed that this additional money should be invested into NATO capability targets and remedying NATO shortfalls. A very important agreement. Mm -hmm. And in Warsaw, we, they, they also agreed that, the, if you wish, the headline for these NATO capability targets reads, our forces should become more, heavier, more high-end forces and capabilities, and more forces high readiness. And the third C of the three Cs is contributions to operations and missions, not only to NATO, but also to those operations which indirectly or directly serve the security of Europe and NATO, including operations which are being conducted by the European Union. Right, and I would, I would, I would say that probably most of the other operations, non-NATO operations, are missions by the yeah. European Union, for example, in, uh, in Africa, um, in the Sahel, Correct. Um, for example. So you will remember since 1996, if I'm not mistaken, um, the, the transatlantic partners have worked on um, how to bring in harmony the requirement for the Europeans to be able to act on their own, because it's their continent, it's their periphery, with a requirement for a unified transatlantic bond, a strong transatlantic bond and a unified alliance. And this history has its ups and downs. But most recently, um, the, uh, or the last three years, the uh, cooperation between NATO and the EU has reached a level which, uh, which is unprecedented. What does it mean? Both organizations have recognized that either organization plays an essential role for providing security and stability in and for Europe. The European Union has recognized in writing by many Council conclusions, heads of state and government agreement, that NATO is essential and indispensable for Europe's security. And Can I interrupt you there? So, does that mean really that there is n no risk of competition um, at, at, the, at, 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 at the letter as at the, the political levels. agreements are concerned? Right. Uh, it has been recognized and signed up to that the defense of Europe is a sole task for NATO, collective defense, defense of Europe. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we NATO, with all the non-EU allies, US, Canada, Norway, and others. Turkey. Turkey. Turkey with some reservations, uh, to put it friendly yes. or mildly, have recognized that also the European Union and the so-called their um, uh, common Come. security and defense policy contributes to providing security for Europe and, in a way, also for NATO. Why? CSDP is focused on crisis management operations outside 
the European borders, North Africa, um, in particular in Africa. And um, there is a, there is a sentence if this retreats, if our neighborhood and our partners there are stable, our security in Europe and in NATO will be increased. Mm -hmm. So this, if properly handled, there is by the very nature of our task, a complementary and mutually beneficial and reinforcing relationship between NATO and EU. And you could say even, you could even use the word burden sharing, because if yeah. the European Union is engaged in those kinds of crisis management activities, in particular, um, you know, Africa is one that gets a lot of attention, that means the United States is either not having to do it or to be honest, the United States has to provide some support because the, the, the EU is not in a position to execute those missions autonomously. No. So there is, U, there is U.S. support, but it is much less than if the United States were, were in a leadership role in a NATO operation. Now, to be fair and honest, in recent times, one could observe that the European Union has raised the ambition in terms of what they call European defense. Yeah. And this term is a reason for many misunderstandings and misperceptions. That's exactly what I wanted to, to It's come not to. about the defense of Europe. European defense is part of the concept within their global strategy, uh, um, which they have developed. And my reading is that European defense is mostly about three things. Capability development by the European nations organized in the European Union and with the support of the European Union. So, more investment, better capabilities, more cooperation between the EU member states to create useful and uh, usable capabilities and also to uh, foster the European defense market which is sometimes of particular concern for some in the United States. Mm -hmm. and, and there I think you come to, a, you know, there's, a, there's a tension in the U.S. position because yeah. Americans, on the one hand, want Europeans to do more. That's a legitimate um, uh, desire uh, because the United States uh, is, is by far the largest defense spender uh, compared to our allies. Right. But at the same time, um, the United States is very skeptical about anything that could look like the development of a European defense market with the fear that the United States and its companies might be excluded. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, just to add one point, because in my previous job, I remember well um, uh, chairing a, uh, a meeting at CSIS where we had the Estonian defense minister, uh, Yuri Luik. There is no uh, more staunch transatlanticist out there than, uh, than the Estonian defense minister. And he was asked this very question, and his answer was, if the European Union is spending its member states' um, funds through an EU mechanism on acquiring or developing defense capabilities, it's hard to see um, why you know, why you shouldn't have that uh, focused on European uh, firms. Um, there's, there's a similar practice, even if it's not a, a legal principle, uh, in the way the United States tends to approach these things. I mean, these things are currently uh, under discussion and being ne negotiated, and these are very tough and difficult negotiations because they are also related to Brexit and all the implications and related questions. Yeah. How should the UK be dealt with when they leave the European Union, also in this regard. Should they be treated like the Norwegians have been treated, who have a special relationship and contract with the European Union, or something else? Mm -hmm. What does it mean for the US and for Canada and others? Um, that is difficult, but many in, in Europe are also saying, in terms of equal treatment, do we Europeans have open access to the US? defense market and armament market. So it's a right. two-way street. Yeah, and we've got you know, to be able to see the, 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 the realities of our yeah. own position if we, uh, we want to shine yeah. a light on others. What I would like to stress, Jeff, is 
then we need to be very clear about the meaning of European defence. It's in the first place about capability development and improvement of the European Union to be able to launch CIF middle crisis management um, operations outside the European Union. And the third one is border security in view of the migration and uh, uh, refugee flow to mm -hmm. Europe. Which is a business NATO has no desire no, to get not. into. So also in this regard, we complement each other, at least in theory and, mm -hmm. and uh, by concept. And uh, so, now let's not forget that still 22 EU member states, European Union member states, are also NATO allies. Five of the European Union members who are not NATO allies are close partners to NATO and are linked with NATO through a special defense planning process. So the capability development between those partners and EU members and our capability development is coordinated with a view to improving interoperability with all of them. In particular, so. Sweden and Finland stand Sweden out, and Finland as, stand out as, as having a very yeah. close relationships. So all nations have only one pool of forces. All nations have only one defense budget. So all these nations are essentially interested and adamant to make sure that capability development within NATO and capability development within the European Union with the support, for example, by the European Commission through the newly established European Defence Fund are being complementary, mm -hmm. to say the minimum. Now, Ideally coherent. Mm -hmm. in terms of priorities and output. And the forces which are being created need to be available for both, NATO and EU. And as someone who has been on the inside of this process uh, from, from the NATO uh, angle and in collaboration with your colleagues uh, in the European Commission, what's your assessment of, of how, you know, are there practical concerns of duplication or at the, at, for the time being, is the process functioning as it's supposed to? That is complementarity, um, but without uh, duplication and without forcing countries to make trade-offs between targets established by NATO and targets established by the European Union. My personal experience um, um, over years has been very good and I'm increasingly optimistic and satisfied with the process as is, has been, as it is currently being and has been carried forward by the two staffs. So coordination of capability development and um, identifying forces and capabilities required for NATO's mission spectrum and on the other hand for the European Union mission which is more civilian military is a matter of staff coordination in the first place. The reason is that we have different memberships and there's one constellation which is traditionally difficult, that is the Turkish-Cypriot conflict or mm -hmm. dispute. With Cyprus being member of the European Union, Turkey being member of uh, NATO but non-member of the European Union, uh, in view of that, um, there is a general agreement also by these nations that the coordination process in both organizations should be carried forward by the two staffs. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, my staff and I myself uh, have been working with the German Council Secretariat, or it's now called, um, uh, you know, it's now a different name, and the European Defense Agency. Mm -hmm. And most recently, with my colleague from the Defense Investment Division, Camille Grand, with the, with the European Commission. This has been underpinned and elevated and supported and boosted by joint declarations, which for the first time were signed by the two top leaders of both organizations, Secretary General of NATO, mm -hmm. uh, President of the Council Tusk, and President of the Commission Juncker, already in Wales, a joint declaration to improve the cooperation between NATO and the EU in certain defined number of areas. Cyber defense, hybrid warfare, crisis management operations, capability development, 
strategic communications. And more recently, also logistics and uh, infrastructure. And the, the enablement or military, the work on military mobility for forces in, European, in, yeah. in Europe, for moving forces across Europe, from the North America to Europe, and from Europe to the outside. So periphery is a flagship project in this regard. So to, if, I, if I can try to sum that up, it is yeah. that because of existing political disagreements, in particular uh, the Turkey-Cyprus um, issue, NATO and the European Union have found a way to inoculate their cooperation from um, the, you know, the, the potential disruption that comes from that political disagreement. And that's working reasonably well. At, at the same time, uh, you, know, you, you will have noticed, as certainly I have and people in the United States, that at a time of, of growing practical, productive collaboration, uh, we still have these more theoretical um, uh, disagreements about the, the long-term vision, perhaps, and the ultimate objective of, uh, of, uh, of the European um, uh, defense policy. And so that's where we hear, for example, the, uh, the idea of, of strategic autonomy. Um, but I, I want to focus on the, what, what drove some news this past week, which is the way French President Macron and then later uh, German Chancellor Merkel talked about the idea of a, a European army. This is, an, this is a notion that is persistent in the rhetoric of European leaders going back many years. Um, and it seems that the one on the one hand to, <coughs> to set up a goal of, of being, uh, of having an autonomous um, European force, uh, but at the same time, the, the horizon on which this would be accomplished is receding ever further into the into the future. So, uh, what is the, in your view, what's uh, what is the practical effect um, of this, and and what what is there that what should one be concerned about, if anything? I mean, to my observation, Jeff, there has been a lot of confusion about this term or concept, and whenever mentioned and discussed, in particular in France and in Germany, the confusion is growing, in my view. I mean, on the one hand, we need to be clear and fair. It's about the, the, the common security and defense policy of the European Union. It's about the security and ability to act by the Europeans. You could say it's an expression of a sense of responsibility of the Europeans who are organizing the European Union for the security of their own continent. And it's also a, an expression of realism that not at any time the US, who is engaged as a global power in many theaters, stands ready to solve our problems mm -hmm. in Europe or around. So the original idea that the Europeans should take more responsibility should be more engaged in addressing the risks and challenges and threats that concern primarily Europe is reasonable, absolutely mm -hmm. reasonable. And if properly handled, there's no contradiction between transatlantic bond at NATO and the CSTP, the Common Security and Defense Policy, as we just discussed. Mm -hmm. Now, does this require a European army? I mean, as a vision, given the fact that the Europeans are 500 inhabitants, or have 500 uh, inhabitants. 500 million. 500 million. The economy is almost as strong as the US. Mm -hmm. We are a continent. So one could argue, yes, of course, and one day the European Union members or the Europeans should be capable of and willing to provide for their own security. This would then require inter-area European army. Mm -hmm. Now, is it realistic now? Is it desirable now and in the foreseeable future? My clear answer is no. Um, I mean, a European army would require, as a, in the first place, a political union, a united mm -hmm. Europe, yes. as a quasi-state, if you wish. 
and it would require the readiness of 27 member states to integrate their ground forces, air forces, maritime forces onto Central European Command. Look around Europe to these various nations. Can you imagine that this is realistic? No. Is it and, 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 and not even for some of the countries that are pushing it most uh, energetically. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. In, part, in particular, West to Germany. Yeah. I, I mean, France has a tradition <laughs> of, of, of having a very robust international engagement uh, and a strong sense of its, uh, of its national role and of its sovereignty. So um, I think there is a now, real tension there. And I, I ask for your indulgence. I need to relate it to the concept of strategic autonomy. I mean, Chancellor Merkel didn't mention it, but Macron, President Macron, established yes. a linkage. What does strategic autonomy mean? In my view, three things. Control of nuclear weapons and ensuring nuclear deterrence. In the first place, against Russia. Second, the capability to defend Europe in its entirety, from northern Norway to southeast Greece and southwest Portugal. A huge area with all the seas. 80% of native territory in Europe is water. Mm -hmm. Collective defense by Europeans of their own uh, continent. And the third one, the ability to uh, militarily intervene in crisis wherever needed, and not just around Europe, but globally. In other words, strategic autonomy implies that Europeans would be able and willing to protect their global sea lines of communications which are essential for their economies. Is this realistic? Question mark. Is it desirable? My clear answer is not for the time being. And for me, the key requirement is ensuring nuclear deterrence. Mm -hmm. The only nation and the only ally that provides extended nuclear deterrence uh, for Europe vis-a-vis -vis Russia is the United States. No other nation is able or willing to do it. So therefore, um, as a result or as a conclusion, we should continue to foster the transatlantic bond. The United States need to remain a European power, European power, a key ally. But in order to ensure that into the future, the Europeans within NATO and also within the European Union need to do much more and need to spend much more effort on contributing to the common defense and common mastering the common challenges. And this leads back to the burden sharing. Yes. Question. Well, and you know, I think uh, to to hit upon your question whether it's desirable, uh, you know, you you can look at this from two perspectives. One, uh, as an American, uh, you know, it has been a tradition for the United States to see itself as a European power, and also for the United States to believe that its defense and security begins in Europe. Yeah. That uh, that it it is dangerous for the United States if Europe. Um, is uh, is dominated by another uh, another power, and so that has been a tradition, and I hope it continues. And there are plenty of people who want that to continue. From a European perspective, uh, of course, it, you know, one cannot look across the Atlantic uh, over the last two years and hear uh, sometimes disparaging, at other times deeply critical comments about uh, about NATO and about uh, the Europeans' role in NATO and about burden sharing. And, and not uh, be a bit concerned about what that might mean many years down the road. I, I don't think a U.S. withdrawal from NATO in the near term is at all likely. But, of course, Europeans have to think about their long-term future. And that, I think, is where this, uh, this idea of eventually having um, the, the ability yeah. to defend uh, Europe uh, it comes from. Yeah. Of course, it would cost a heck of a lot of money. Yeah. It would cost a lot more than 2% uh, of GDP. Yeah. It, it's hard to put an exact number on it, yeah. but it, it, it is not doable at the current level of European defense spending. So those who advocate strategic autonomy um, or indeed even a European army um, never really seem to connect it 
with the need for a drastic um, increase in European investment in defense, which seems to me to be the really weak link in this, uh, in this uh, rhetorical cycle we get into from time to time. In particular, if you also add the fact that the United Kingdom, uh, with a very significant military and nuclear potential, is about to leave the European Union. Right. And what is left for the European Union member states, they would, as you said, indeed invest enormously in their own security. My thumb rule is more than 5%. Uh, 5%. But this is a a broad assumption. Um, I would not deny that if the political will was there, or would be there, or is there, the Europeans could provide the necessary resources. Um, I would, however, hold the view, continue to hold the view, that for the foreseeable future, we need uh, the extended nuclear deterrence provided by the United States, and therefore the US need to be militarily deployed in Europe. Mm -hmm. And as you rightly pointed out, and that is important, important message to your American compatriots, it is also in the global US strategic interest. I'm convinced that America first at global level can only be maintained and pursued with America's best allies, with Europe as a partner. So the other side of the coin is, however, to to make sure that the Europeans are being recognized as a respected, capable, and credible partner to the United States. We, the Europeans, need to do much more in terms of contributing to our common security. And this starts with defense spending, mm-hmm. no doubt. Therefore, all the European allies and Canada need to adhere to the commitment of Wales, 2% yeah. in area. And it uh, uh, gets on with providing usable strategic capabilities which are also of use for the United States and for the Europe, Europeans themselves. And in doing so, the Europeans within NATO but also with the European Union would be more capable to provide for their own security on their own if needed. Right. So, so there is a, a virtuous, there's a virtuous circle yeah. um, uh, here because... The, as, as, exactly as you put it, the more Europeans do to meet their targets within the alliance structure, um, the better able they will be um, yeah. to deal with um, certain now challenges. Now I would like to add one uh, um, comment in order to be fair to all those that conti- who contribute to this discussion. You might have observed that the German Defense Minister Ursula von der Leyen talks about an army of the Europeans. And what she has in mind is that we should commit, increasingly commit to multinational integration mm-hmm. of our forces. And she has a number of examples. The Franco-German Brigade, the deep integration of uh, the Dutch army and the German army, the exchanges of, uh, and mutual uh, subordination, if you wish, between Polish formations and German formations. Yes. That is a very valuable initiative because it links the European uh, nations, it improves mutual understanding, it improves a common strategic assessment, it improves exercise and training, it improves interoperability, it is beneficial for the Europeans um, to work together in peacetime, in crisis and in a war or a conflict as we have experienced in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. All these regional commands were incredibly valuable for the nations who participated and contributed to these multinational clusters, if you wish. You might have heard that the Germans lead um, the so-called framework nation grouping. Yes. They have gathered 19 continental nations, not France, but 19 others, and lead on developing capabilities and also multinational formations which could be used across the whole spectrum of NATO's missions from crisis response to high-end capabilities. Mm-hmm. The objective is 
to create a multinational core for a land force. So that needs to be supported in my view. Whether it should be called an army of the Europeans or just more integrated European armed forces, yeah. and, I leave that open. I, and I think the, the, the more political leaders use this, this kind of lofty right. um, rhetoric, the more it emphasizes or, or um, sheds light on the fact that between individual European nations, the visions still remain quite different in many cases. Yes. So uh, the attempts at, at finding a unifying higher level of discussion actually creates more confusion, yeah. uh, I think. I, and know, I personally see, see another risk. For, um, if those who continue to talk about strategic autonomy without clearly defining what it means. Mm -hmm. And what it costs. I have recently talked to a, an advisor to President Macron. He was telling me, Strategic economy is about just three things. Independent assessment and analysis. Independent analysis, independent assessment, independent decision making. Fine. But for me, that's a platitude. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is a feature of every sovereign nation. And also the organization, not contested. The European Union takes their decision autonomously. We NATO do it, our council. But my feeling is this is something different than President Macron has in mind. And if you then continue to, as you talked, uh, put it, this lofty speak on the European army, it does not only raise suspicions in America, it also raises suspicions in Europe. That's right. Those who are located close to Russia attach much more importance to NATO deterrence and defense primarily provided by the United States, then to a European army, which is a future vision. They need strong defense now. <laughs> exactly. And to my observation, even the Swedes and the Finns share these views, because they are also now in the focus of the Russian threat in the Baltic region. So my concern is the more we t people and, and uh, senior politicians promote this concept, the more we risk a division of unity, even in the European Union. Yeah, and, I think, I, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that, because I think that is, that is especially important now at a time of some political friction uh, across the Atlantic and even within the European Union, uh, that, uh, that, our, that the, the rhetorical flourishes don't create deeper um, uh, misunderstandings or suspicions um, about what we're trying to accomplish together. And you're absolutely right for, for countries close to, uh, close to Russia uh, and those who observe very carefully what's happening now still in Ukraine. Uh, they, uh, they're not interested in uh, a strategic autonomy that ha happens, if it ever happens, 20 years down the road. Right. They're interested in security now, as, yeah. you, as you put it so well. Yeah. On the other hand, and with a view to your American listeners, um, it should be recognized that those who take their commitment and responsibility seriously and would like European, the European Union develop to not just a security consumer, but a security also at a global scale. Mm -hmm. They need public support and also create of, uh, the um, raise the necessary funding and defense budgets. And in a number of European nations, the sound bit Europe creates more support, public support, than the sound bit currently the US or NATO. Right. In other words, therefore, working for European capabilities, working for European cooperation, for European effectiveness, for European investment within NATO, but also within the European Union and complementary to each other should be absolutely supported. So, in other words, Washington should keep up the pressure to do more, but, uh, but be willing, be tolerant 
of the different ways in which Europeans um, may find it best or most successful. Yeah. And should uh, be confident that strengthening the European uh, capabilities and uh, willingness to cooperate within the European pillar in NATO, but also within the European Union and supported by European funds and means is also beneficial for the US. One shining example you mentioned already is the work on military mobility. Mm -hmm. In NATO we call it enablement of SACUR's area, SACUR, Supreme Command of Europe, area of responsibility from the North Pole to the um, uh, cancer, Tropic of Cancer, mm -hmm. from the eastern North American border to the eastern border of NATO. That is his responsibility. And in order to ensure credible deterrence and, if need be, defense against Russia or others, we need to be able to bring quickly American, North American forces, US and Canadian forces across the Atlantic, and need to move, even in a crisis which legally is still peacetime in Europe, yes. across Europe, and or from Europe to other theaters. That is the function or the task of enabling, technical term, in NATO, and at the same time the European Union has committed to improving and working on what they call military mobility. And it is the Commission which has established nine corridors for improving infrastructure yes. in Europe, and they are prepared to dual finance and dual fund of fund dual capabilities, SIF mill infrastructure. In but other words, if main supply roads, bridges, tunnels, airports, harbors. So that is in the common interest of the North American allies and all Europeans. That's right. And for listeners who may not be uh, deep in the details of the European Union, the European Commission, through its transportation um, and so-called structural funding, um, provides enormous uh, amounts of resources, much more than, than goes through the NATO budget, right. um, to build infrastructure in Europe and to, uh, to match uh, funds that national governments right. spend. So this is one of those areas uh, I've long believed where the European Union is really able to deliver yeah. the things that NATO needs. Yeah. And it's another reason why the close partnership between the two organizations um, is, is really essential if you want to have the infrastructure in place um, uh, to enable uh, the, exactly the movements you described, Heiner. All right. Well, um, I, I, maybe I'll just uh, end with one uh, slightly more personal note, Heiner, because you've just re you've just retired after how many years uh, as a German uh, more army than forty six years as a German soldier officer. Forty six years. Forty six years. Okay. So well, I started in nineteen seventy two. We have been so fortunate to have you as a leader in that, uh, in that effort, Heiner. And uh, so my personal thanks, um, but also my thanks for this discussion and uh, for helping, uh, helping us understand a little bit better what's, uh, what's happening in transatlantic defense and, and where it's going to go. So thanks so much. Thank you very much, Jeff. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist from the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Be sure to check AICGS.org slash podcast for notes from today's episode. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, please leave a review. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at AICGS and Instagram at AICGSDC. Auf Wiederhören.